Well, good morning. Welcome to Church of the Mall. Welcome home. We are beginning a brand new series entitled The Stories That Shape Us. And so as we begin to think about how we have this amazing God who not only created us, but created the universe and everything in it, he then interacts in our lives and throughout history to be a part of our everyday existence and life. And therefore, we all have stories that we can share of hope in which we've experienced God in some way, shape, or form. And so as we begin to look at this series, we're going to have uh, different individuals come up and speak during the next few weeks to share about some of the stories that shape them. And so for the next two weeks, uh, Mariah and I are going to kick off the series and kind of talk about some stories that help shape us. And so today, I'm going to tell you my faith story and how God began shaping me from the time I was a little boy. Last week, we talked about you've not passed this way before, and we went through the entire series of Joshua, and we closed it off last week. I just want to remind you, if you've not gotten to look at that or experience any of that, it's up on iTunes now. You can download it uh, under podcasts, or you can also check it out on YouTube and Facebook. It is a great journey as we begin exploring who we are and what is God calling us to do in this new series of life that we're in, especially considering how changed the world has been due to the pandemic. So... Today's message is entitled, Salvation Through Chocolate Malts and Felt Boards. And I've shared this story before in my life, but when I grew up, I grew up in a church, uh, probably not too ununique to many churches you grew up in. It's called Fletcher Hills Presbyterian Church. This is what it looks like today, so it hasn't changed a bit. It actually looks exactly like how I remembered as a kid. But this was like the epitome of mid-century church building. All right, they built this church. It's up on top of a hill in El Cajon in San Diego, California, and you can see it from miles around, and it's just this idea of if you build it, they will come. And so I spent my childhood in this church growing up and learning about the person of Jesus, getting to sing hymns and songs. In fact, I remember when my mother began taking me to the first uh, more radical service that church has seen in years, and it was led by this really cool hippie guy and his wife. He played shockingly an acoustic guitar and she played a, a jimbe and bongos and congos and oh my gosh it was radical we were doing church differently and it was an exciting time to grow up in that church however there was something more important in my life when i was about 12 or 13 we would come to church and on your way in from the main road you'd make a left past the beef and bun now the beef and bun was always that that signal of oh we're almost at church the beef and bun became even more than that to me. As a kid, that was a place that I would often sneak away to find my own salvation on Sunday mornings. In fact, as a kid, I, I didn't like going to church. Sometimes my mother would drag me kicking and screaming, and I'm so thankful that she did because it had a radical impact on who I became today. But I grew up in this church. I, I experienced even my preschool at this church, and so this was a home for me, a safe place, and I got to know special people like a lady named Mrs. Dazelle but I'll get more to her in a minute. The beef and bun. Do you know that when you leave service after the children's moment and you walk outside into the educational hall or the classroom buildings, if you make a sharp left, there is a back secret staircase that takes you all the way down to one block away from the beef and bun. And so this is what I would do every Sunday morning. I would sneak left as everyone went right, and I would go down to the beef and bun, and for about $2, you could get a shake, and then for 25 cents extra, 25 cents extra, you could get sprinkles. So here's the beef and bun. This is the menu, and this is exactly what it looked like. And as a kid, it's funny, when I found this picture, it brought back all these memories. But what I think is more interesting is this. If you look at the red outline of the uh, menu, 
When I first moved here to Ohio in 2004, I was at the Twig Thrift Shop, a place my grandmother volunteered, and they had, on my left, your right, this red box that lit up. And I saw it, and I loved it, and I thought, i got to have that, and the price was $4, and I bought it, and for years we used it as a sign for ministry, and today it lives in our children's space as a sign that is always lit, inviting people into the space. But it's that same menu that I saw at the beef and bun. I think that's funny. And so it calls to me. It says, hey, Kevin, come and worship at the counter of the beef and bun. And so when I would go, I would get my shake, and I would sit there, and I would contemplate, I don't know, life and sprinkles and baseball, and that was my life. And here's the beef and bun in all its glory. Now, most of you are looking at this and probably thinking this should be a commercial for Alka-Seltzer, because who the heck would eat at a place like this? But I assure you, my father, who was just a culinary excellence, would say that this hole-in-the-wall greasy spoon place is the best there is. And he's not alone. This is what a shake would have looked like, and that's their cool logo on there. And this is what people are saying about it today. And I just want to show you this because I think it's so important because I wasn't alone in this, right? Justin Goodman says the milkshakes are the best in San Diego. His lobster says I've been patronizing this place more than 20 years, and the beef and bun is still the best shakes ever. Matt A. says the shakes are where it's at. And Misty Kit says the best shakes in town. Try a banana chocolate peanut butter shake. Now, the reason I bring that one up is because my best friend Jeremy, who sometimes would join me, would get the peanut butter banana shake with sprinkles. So here we are. Now, the reason I tell you this is because as I think about this parable in Luke, where Jesus is sitting at a table with not only these reprobate sinners, right, these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these, these sellouts of the Jewish faith, He's also sitting with people that really look at themselves as holier than thou, better than. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the keepers of the law, those that would help instruct the people of God to know God personally. But instead of entering into life with them, they just sit in their high castles and make themselves relevant by pretending to be reverent. Well, meanwhile, the people are wandering around trying to find out who is this God that they talk about. And not seeing the character line up in the same way as the God of the Bible with how these particular individuals live their lives, many of them have just walked away from the Jewish faith. Now, the reason I bring this up is because this is not a story that is too unfamiliar with us today. In fact, all throughout the news over the last two years has been article after article about how the church in America is dying. Right now, they're projecting one in five churches to be dead by the end of this year. COVID has taken its toll on them. However, COVID is not the reason why churches are failing. In fact, depending on which article you read, the church has actually begun its decline sometime in the 70s. Or if you study Methodism, you can go all the way back and say the church began declining when the circuit riders got off their horses and began going into buildings. The point is this. When we look at the world around us, the reason people aren't coming to church is, is not all these uh, elevated ideas and concepts, it's, it's simply this. Church is not of a value to them anymore. Just like as a kid, church wasn't as valuable to me as a milkshake. And so I would much rather spend my time, my energy, even my little money I had on a milkshake than in church. Now, maybe you can relate with that, or maybe you know of someone in your life that you can see them relating to that. But the truth is, no matter what happens from here on out, the church in America is on decline and it will fade away and die, much like it's been doing in Europe and other countries. But the gospel 
the gospel will never die. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is for anyone and everyone who is looking for a little hope in their lives. And Jesus isn't going anywhere. But the institution has to change. Now, remember that little church, Fletcher Hills, Presbyterian Church that I went to? That was a church very sought in its ways. It was very strict about what the rules were and what age you had to be in order to serve and be a part of the church community and what you could and couldn't do and, and how you could serve and how you couldn't. And they had to wrap their minds around something radical and different. They started looking at a generation like my generation that was the up-and-coming people in the church, and they said, you know, we have to think differently about this. So while little Kevin Kosky is ditching church and going to the beef and bun, my mother, a Sunday school teacher named Mrs. Dazelle, and the board got together and figured out a very strategic plan. They said, what would happen if we invited this kid into ministry? Well, don't you know that's exactly what happened? One Sunday, I'm getting ready to do my same routine. I'm the last one in line, knowing full well that when the class exits right, I can go left to the beef and bun. And Mrs. Dazelle, out of nowhere, my kindergarten Sunday school teacher approaches me, a middle school boy, and says, Kevin, I'm so glad I found you today. My aide is sick. Would you mind coming to my classroom and helping me out? Man, I've never been invited into something like that. I mean, I've been invited to things, right? Like, hey, come to church or, hey, come to my house. But I've never been invited into something. Hey, come do this with me. Come be a part of something bigger than you and I. And so at 12, 13 years of age, I took up that call and I went into that Sunday school classroom and, and we began studying the Word of God on felt boards. Now, for most of you, you don't know what a felt board is. But it looks something like this. It's quite frankly a cardboard or a wood board that's been glued on top with felt. And then you take a piece of paper that has a picture of Jesus or whatever Bible story you're trying to teach and, and you cut it out and you color it and then you glue it to another piece of felt and the felt sticks together almost like Velcro and you can tell the story by manipulating the pieces. So I know this is radical. This is like technology before there was technology, but this is what I witnessed. I watched little paper Jesus come on to this board and the little paper outcasts and the little paper Jew, or Pharisees and Sadducees. And then I watched Jesus tell the story and all of a sudden the teacher wiped all those pieces off and she put the shepherd on there and she put all the little sheep and then she took one sheep and put them way out over here and, and told the story of the lost sheep. Now, it probably wasn't just that moment, but that moment is kind of like a puzzle piece. Do you ever have that in your life where... Maybe it wasn't that one moment that changed everything for you, but it certainly was a piece that began building, and all of a sudden you saw the bigger picture later in life. Well, either way, that was a moment that began shaping me. It's a story that shaped me. And all of a sudden I realized I, I was a lost sheep and that God was looking for me. You know, when we tell that story in church, we often talk about, you know, this idea of a sheep being lost, and oh, thank God the shepherd found him, but... Have you ever thought that there's a shepherd looking for you? That there's a shepherd that wants to invite you into something far more than, than what you have in your life right now? That wants to bring you to a whole new place that fills you with purpose and meaning, healing and hope? I, I mean, who couldn't use just a little more hope? And so as I, I got into this story, it just, it really began kind of shaping me. And so I started to really look at this and I thought, well, wow, okay, let's unpack this story. And so as a little kid, I'm, I'm listening to the teacher explain to kindergartners 
what this means. And she says, well, you know, in biblical times, tax collectors, they were, they were hated. They were regarded as, as sinners, people that were separated from God. And they were the Jews who worked for the Romans. And so this made them sellouts and traitors. And people resented paying taxes to these foreigners who ruled over them. And so nobody was friends with a tax collector. And then we go on to say tax collectors were not paid an actual wage by the Romans, but they were expected to, to take a little bit of extra money off the top of what they collected from people and pay themselves. And unfortunately, due to human nature, many of them abused that privilege. And so no wonder they were hated people and nobody wanted to be with them. And after a while, they probably started believing what everyone was telling them, that they were unworthy of God's love. But then something radical happens. You know, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, shows up. And he doesn't just talk to them. He, he doesn't just preach to them. He, he invites them to sit down at a dinner table with him. So that the same loaf of bread that's going around the table that people are tearing pieces off, Jesus is tearing off and they're tearing off. The, the same pitcher that's pouring all the wine, Jesus is drinking from that same pitcher. I mean, they're sharing life together. And the Pharisees and Sadducees that are in the room watching this happen just can't wrap their minds around it. Jesus, how on earth would you allow yourself to be defiled by such delinquents? And that's when Jesus goes into this story. Well, wait a minute, guys. What if you had something really special to you that mattered a lot? Your whole livelihood, your whole life, your whole identity was based on it. Let, let's say you're a shepherd with a hundred sheep. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, one gets lost from the pack, whether it wanders away or whether it didn't keep up or whether you went right and it went left. Either way, there's a sheep missing. Which one of you doesn't look at that scenario and say, I, I need to go find that one lost sheep because it's important to me. And as, as Jesus is telling this story, he's placing them in the midst of exactly what God is doing in their midst. He's inviting people to be a part of his family. Now, again, I grew up in this little church, and, you know, you think of this cute little lamb, but, but the reality is I, I, I don't think this is how they look. I think they look like this. You know, they ain't pretty or purdy. You know, it's meant to be slang. It's meant to not fit in. It's meant to not look like this makes sense because the reality is when we look at people outside the church, we often see this rather than this. This looks fun. This looks like a problem. And unfortunately, most churches look at it this way. But the reason this sheep doesn't look like the other sheep is because this sheep has lived a life of neglect. It's been separated from the flock. It hasn't been sheared and taken care of. And its fur is now matted and filled with mites and bugs and dust. In fact, when they shaved the sheep, it was over 80 pounds of weight and what was left on it. And so when Jesus looks at us, he, he sees that we're not so much sinners separated from grace. We're, we're sheep that have been lost and neglected, and he wants to bring us home and take care of us. Now, again, I grew up in a 1950s church where Jesus was about as Scandinavian as you could get. In fact, I think one picture, he even had blonde hair, and you could tell they went back and colored it brown later on. 
And I understand that may not be the Jesus of the Bible, but the character and nature described in the person Jesus is. But I would see pictures like this in church. And I know some people look at this and they say, oh, that's the white Jesus of privilege. And look at how he's, he's trying to reach a sheep and how cool is that. But, but as a kid, this, this is what I saw. I saw a Jesus... in white, pristine clothes. The kind of clothes that as a kid we weren't allowed to go play in the dirt with. Crawling on his hands and feet, reaching over the cliff to rescue this lamb. And, and what it said to me as a child was that Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes, even soil himself, to bring me back to his family because I matter that much. Who wouldn't leave the 99 for the one when the one matters that much? And as Jesus is explaining this story, he's really talking about you and me. He's talking about all the people of the world, that he looks at each one of us as though we're that neglected sheep and he wants to bring us home and provide for us invite us into something far greater than what you and I could accomplish on our own to give us meaning and purpose so that no matter what happens in this world we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are loved and accepted for who we are because of Jesus Christ because he he doesn't see the brokenness he sees the child that he loves inside so here's our question we're going to ponder what would happen if you and I started looking for lost sheep? Now, here's what that means to me. That means, number one, I'm going to ponder what it is to be a lost sheep and to be sought after. That Jesus chose me, just like he chooses you. When I think about what he's willing to give up, that the 99 sheep, his entire livelihood, everything he was in heaven, he, he literally empties himself of deity, as scripture says, and takes on flesh. That, that doesn't mean that he stops being God. It simply means he, he devoids himself of the power and authority given to him as God of the universe in order to come into the world as a human being to meet us where we're at, to crawl on his hands and knees in the muck and mire, to reach out, to hold on to us so that we know we're loved and accepted and worthy. I don't know of any other God, any other religion that offers that. You have a God who not only created you and knows you by name and how many hairs are on your head, but you have a God who wants to invite you into a relationship with him. Once you accept that and understand that and begin exploring that, what would it be like to invite others into that? You know, as we look at the, the problem going on in churches right now in America and how one in five are probably going to close by the end of this year, I've watched churches in my own town of Granville dump money back into themselves, where, where donors have poured in money. And the problem I see with that is, is that they're going to be able to fix the building and they're going to be able to carry on the way they're carrying on. But all they've done is they've rolled the clock back. They haven't fixed the problem, which is that there are a whole bunch of lost sheep out there waiting for the shepherd to come and get them. 
and that Jesus wants to use people like you and me to go out and get them. But when I look at the church and the value that we offer today, I can see why people would rather buy a milkshake than come to church. But for those that are invited into something bigger, to experience the person of Jesus, to taste and see that he is good, to, to come and be a part of something far greater than just sitting in seats or, or watching online, but to actually get your hands dirty in the ministries of the church, then all of a sudden that milkshake doesn't look as good as it once did. And this new experience looks far greater. My friends, we, we are on a journey as a church that we have been on since day one, that we're rethinking church, that we're rethinking how we can be a vibrant offering in this world that would invite people to know the peace and love of Jesus, to know that Jesus is searching for them like that shepherd is looking for his sheep. Not to scold, not to punish, not to reprimand, but to nurture and invite into a relationship with. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to ponder this question. What would happen if we went looking for lost sheep? That means we'd have to leave behind the 99. We'd have to give up some of our control. We'd have to think of new ways in which we might have to do church. We might have to even give up some of our own preferences. But in doing so, we would find that treasured sheep that is worth far more than anything we had to give up. And I think there's something in that process that not only does God want to redeem his sheep, but he wants to do something in our lives too. Because when I read this story, I don't identify with the Pharisee and the Sadducee. I identify with the tax collector. That Jesus is looking for me and wanting to invite me. Well, I'm here to tell you he's looking for you too. And now, not only does he want to invite you, he wants to use you to invite others. Ponder that this week. Allow that to sink in. Who is God putting in my life that I can share hope with? 